you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. We have been starting a new series in our evening sermons. We're going to be going through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians as the pastoral staff uh, preaches through these two books, these two letters. The title for these letters, this sermon series that I've given to it is A Certain Gospel in an Uncertain World. And that describes the world of Paul and the Thessalonians. But it also describes our world. Our world is very uncertain. It's uncertain about just about everything. And so the certainty of God's word and the gospel stands in sharp relief. And it gives us opportunities to testify to our friends, our neighbors, about the greatness of the gospel and the greatness of our God. And so this morning, we're going, or excuse me, this evening, we're going to be looking at the end, the second part of 1 Thessalonians 1, specifically verses 5 through 10. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. 1 Thessalonians 1, beginning at verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this evening that you would attend your word with power. That your Holy Spirit would convict us of sin. Would comfort us with the gospel. And would guide us into all truth. Lord, we know that you are the speaker of truth, and your word is true. And so we ask that you would bless us this evening, that we would meet with you and know you better. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. In Paul's day, warfare was conducted quite differently than it is in our day. You know, we hear and read articles about the war in the Ukraine and war other places, and you, you don't see footage of armies coming together. There are uh, soldiers with rifles in buildings and behind barricades, and there are tanks that move. But in Paul's day, 
large armies drew themselves up on a plain field where they could see each other. And they would come and literally face-to-face -face clash. And so it was important to determine how to maneuver an army because that could mean the difference between defeat and victory. In, in our current times, every soldier, it seems, has uh, either a communication device or a, a smartphone or something where they can get orders directly from the general. But back in Paul's day, there needed to be a way to get above the din of the battle to tell troops whether to go right or left or retreat or advance. And for many armies, that was accomplished by a series of loud drums. They would pound the drums out, and depending on the beat, the army would know, the soldiers would know where to go and what to do. But other armies used a different instrument, and it was an instrument that was used well up throughout the centuries till perhaps the 18th or 19th centuries, and that was a form of a trumpet, especially in armed forces called the bugle. And a bugler had to learn how to play certain notes well because it would ring out over the battlefield. There would be a, it wasn't just a wake up soldiers and get out of your beds reveille. They would be playing notes that would say, move to the left, advance, uh, stand your ground, retreat. And that's how the army knew. And that trumpet, that bugle, was the communication for the entire army. So much so that the Bible speaks about how will we know what to do if there's an uncertain sound played from the trumpet. A trumpeter had to be certain. He couldn't half play notes. He couldn't start one note and end with another. And this evening, I'd like us to think about that kind of trumpet, but not a musical instrument. Because the church in Paul's day and in our day has a trumpet. A trumpet that it can declare to the world who God is and that they must listen up. And that trumpet, Paul tells us, is affliction. The suffering that we have allows us to sound forth the gospel to the world. And so as Paul ends this first chapter to the church at Thessalonica, he speaks of their affliction and he does it in the context of the word of God. So there are three things that I would like us to see this evening. First, we see the Thessalonians receiving the word of God. Then secondly, we see them imitating the word of God. And then finally, we see them sounding forth the word of God. It is a lesson for us that the word of God must be central to a church, no matter what its circumstances. Let's begin then by looking at verses 5 and 6 and see how Paul describes how this church has received the word of God. He begins, Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Paul begins this passage in an interesting way. He talks about the gospel. But often when you hear the gospel in the Bible... It is a verb, not a noun. It's preaching the gospel. We might even say gospeling. 
It's sharing the gospel with others. It is the way in which we give the message that God has given to us of salvation to others. But that's not what Paul does here. He not, he's not using the verb. He's using the noun, the message itself. So what I want us to see is that Paul is beginning here not with the act of preaching, but with the message itself. He wants our attention focused on the content of the message, on the gospel, which literally means good news. Paul says that this good news, this message, has come to the church at Thessalonica, and it's come not only in word. It's not just something they heard and said, that's interesting, and moved on. It's not just an intellectual exercise. No, he says it came also in power. Now what that reminds us is the gospel is not simply exhortation. If I can be bold here, as you come here this evening and you hear preaching, as you come Lord's Day by Lord's Day and hear preaching, you should not just be filled up with more information. If that is what is happening, then I have failed. And the Holy Spirit is not at work. The gospel should be powerful in your life. It should be something that as you hear, changes you. That the Lord uses to help you in your relationships, in your families, in your work, in your walk with Christ. The gospel doesn't need power. You know, oftentimes you see in our modern day people describing how they bring power to the sharing of the gospel. And they have all these accoutrements that they bring and all these devices and, and miracles and signs and wonders because they think the gospel needs an assist. The gospel doesn't need power. It is power. But let me be clear, the gospel is not just the telling about power. No, it's not just about how you can be better. The gospel is not a tool to fix your problems. It is the work of God. Some see the Bible as a self-help book. It has interesting advice about parenting and about marriage and about saving and about living. But that's not what the Bible is about primarily. The Bible is the story of Jesus Christ and his redemption of sinners. His dragging them from the clutches of darkness and death and bringing them into his marvelous light. God is at work in the gospel. And the evidence that God is at work is the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul says the gospel not only came in power, but it came in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. When the Holy Spirit is at work, we should expect to see changed lives. Now, we don't obey God in order to earn favor with Him. We don't need to earn God's love and favor. But when we are loved by God, when he has saved us through the power of the gospel, when the Holy Spirit has applied the work of Christ to us, people should notice. It should make a difference. We should desire to please God, to follow God, to obey his commandments, to be the kind of people that he has called us to be. This is essential to the faith. And Paul says that this was something that was obvious in the Thessalonians. You didn't just hear it. You didn't just say it was powerful. 
People could look and see what the power was. <coughs> How it had changed you. And this should be a reminder to you and to me. That the gospel can change us. That in our trials and difficulties, in our circumstances, in the things that we wish were different about us, there is a solution. The solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and God has given it to us. But there's more than that. The gospel is not only powerful in our lives, we know that the gospel is powerful in the lives of others. And it changes others. And so we should never lose hope. I think far too often... Christians lose hope for children who've wandered from the faith or spouses who want nothing to do with church or with scripture or with neighbors who just don't seem to ever want to listen to anything about the Lord. Paul is telling you here that it doesn't depend on you. You don't have to work up the power. That the power is found in the gospel. And we have a myriad of examples throughout the history of the world how Augustine's mother prayed for decades for him. How John Newton's mother prayed for decades for him. And finally, the Holy Spirit went to work on their hearts. And they became not only converted, but powerful ministers of the gospel. So never give up hope. Because it doesn't depend on us. It depends on the Lord. Paul says, this is the message you have, but he also goes on to describe the messengers of this gospel. He says, you not only saw this gospel, but you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. They knew the preachers of this gospel. And so Paul laid out his life in front of them. I don't know if you can understand this or get this from the book of Acts, but it seems clear to me that as Paul went from city to city and planted churches and preached the gospel, he did not do so from a distance. He didn't do so holed up in an ivory tower. He was out among the people. He ate with them. He walked with them. He worked with them. He helped them with their problems. He let them see the real Paul, we may put it that way. And, and this is essential for the preacher, not to put on an act, but to bring the gospel to others with truth about who we are. And it's not just essential to Paul or to the preacher, it's essential to the Christian. So I want to encourage you, as you share the gospel with others, do not be afraid to be real with them. You don't need to be artificial. You don't need to pretend your family is perfect, that the children always obey, that the house is always clean, that you're never tired, that work is always the best, that you know all of the answers to every question in the Bible. No. Paul says, you know what kind of men we were. We were with you. When we are real with people, our words carry more weight. Because we can say to others, we're not perfect. We're forgiven, and God is working on us. And that has an effect on people. Many modern preachers do not want to point to their own lives. They want to pretend that they're perfect, that they've got it all together. They want to keep a distance from the people. But Paul says that no preacher can expect a hearing from people unless the gospel bears fruit in his own life. And as a result... Paul was conscious of this, of this great principle. Well, there was a message they had 
They saw the messengers. And then Paul describes in verse 6 the reception that the gospel got from them. He says, You received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now it's interesting. This word received actually carries with it the connotation in the Greek of the word welcome. Exactly what you would think. If someone showed up at your door and you said, welcome, come on in. That's the word you would use. And so it's not just that they got the gospel, that they were handed the gospel. They were eager to get it. It was a welcome thing for them. They were glad to see it. It's like when your children have moved away and they come back to visit. You can't wait to get them in the house. It's when your long friends come and visit. You can't wait to sit down with them and to go over all of the things that are going on in your lives. That's what Paul is describing, how they received the gospel. Now, he says they did this in spite of their circumstances. He said, you received the word, you welcomed the word in much affliction. Now, this word for affliction is sometimes used by Paul to refer to tribulation, if I can give that word. It means a pressing in. It is a hard time. It is actually up a bit of a notch from hard circumstances. And, and Paul makes it clear that circumstances were very difficult for the Thessalonican church. They didn't just have affliction. They had much affliction. So it's not just that times were tough. They were afflicted and they were much afflicted. And we see this even in the book of Acts. In Acts 17, when Paul comes to Thessalonica and he preaches the gospel and he establishes the church, he's run out of town by the authorities. He has to escape. And we're focused on Paul and his affliction of being run out of town. But think about the Thessalonians. Think about you've just started a church and the pastor's run out of town. And you have no elders. And you have no deacons. You have no leaders. What do you do? You don't know all of God's truth. You don't have the whole of the scriptures memorized. That's affliction. That's hardship. And the authorities are doing that specifically to harm this church. But Paul says rather than wallow in sadness and in affliction, they had the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now Paul describes it this way, I think, wonderfully because... It is not a human device. He doesn't say, you had affliction, but you were happy anyway. He doesn't say, you had affliction, but you bore it well. He says, no, you had the joy of the Holy Spirit. That is a supernatural joy. It can only come from the Holy Spirit. It is a fruit of the Spirit, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5. So the challenge then comes to you and to me. How do we respond to the difficulties in our lives? Because you know we have them. If right now you're sitting there thinking to yourself, well, Pastor, things are just going just fine. Everything is perfect. First of all, I'd say, really? But even if that is the case, you know that right around the corner is a financial challenge, is a relationship challenge, is a challenge to your faith. How do you respond when the Lord sends difficulties your way? Do you have the joy of the Holy Spirit? Does the Holy Spirit point you 
to the blessings that God has given to you? Are you able to look up with joy by knowing who God is and what he's done for you? That is how they received the word. The second thing we see is we see the Thessalonians imitating the word. We see this in verses 6 and 7. And Paul puts it in an interesting way. He says, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now, it's, that's interesting because we might ask ourselves, why does Paul put himself first? I mean, if, if we were writing the Bible, we would say, and you are imitators of, uh, of the Lord and us. Because that's, of course, where we should start by imitating the Lord. Paul, are you a little bit self-centered here? Are you mistaken? Have you stuttered? I don't think so. I think what Paul is doing is he's making it concrete how they are to act. He's telling them that they saw Jesus in him. You know, in another place, Paul will say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that's what he's describing here. He's not saying, follow me in all of my idiosyncrasies, in all of my sinfulness, in all of my uniqueness. He's saying, follow me as you see me follow Christ. This just makes sense, right? We see this all the time. How do children develop habits? Well, they develop habits by imitating their parents, don't they? I mean, you've seen this. Even in small children, and the older your children get, I have to tell you, parents, you're in for a bit of a surprise. Because you wind up looking at your children and you see yourself. They use the same phrases the same body language. They've learned it. They're imitating what they have seen. Now, if that's true in a natural family, how much truer should that be in the Christian family? How much truer should children in the faith imitate fathers and mothers in the faith? We should see our fathers and mothers in the faith and watch them as they pray, as they read the scriptures, as they memorize, as they encourage, as they exhort, and seek to imitate them. That's what Paul's saying. I've seen you and you are imitating me. And you're imitating me even in my affliction. You see, Paul, we remember, was cast out of Thessalonica. And his opponents then went after him. In chapter 2, verse 14, Paul tells the church, You suffered the same things from your own countrymen. Not only did they seek to attack me, after I left, they attacked you. So you were imitating me in your affliction. And you had courage. Paul didn't stop preaching the gospel when they tossed him out of a town. He went to the next town and he preached the gospel. And if they tossed him out of that town, you know what he did? He went to the next town and he preached the gospel. He was courageous in the faith. And Paul is saying that this little church here imitated him in this they were courageous in the midst of affliction. They imitated Paul in sharing the gospel. They were an example to the believers and word of their faith spread throughout the area. They were not shy about the gospel. They imitated Paul in wanting others to know about the Lord Jesus Christ. But fundamentally, they were also imitators of Christ. They were imitators of the Lord. And they imitated Christ's affliction. 
You see, when we come under persecution or affliction or hard times, we have to remember that that's following our Lord. Hebrews puts it this way. We are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus looked past affliction. He rejoiced for the joy that was set before him. And we are called to do the same. It's hard in the moment. But let me ask you frankly. Is some financial difficulty worse or more important than glory? Than dwelling with God? Is it something that should bring you down? That could separate you from your Lord? Because you're short a few dollars at the end of the month? Or because you have a challenge with someone at work? We need to look past the challenges of today to what God is preparing for us. And this led to the Thessalonians actually being imitated by others. In verse 7 he says, You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. They were a model. This word example means is the word that we get type in the Bible, typology. And it is an imprint or a pattern. What it would mean is if you made a model or a pattern of something, you would take it and you would press it up against wax or up against cloth and you would see the model, the imprint, the type of that form on the wax, on the cloth. And it was an example to be followed. And what Paul says here is groundbreaking. This is the only place in all of the scriptures where Paul tells a church that they were a model for others to follow. Now think about that for a moment. This is a poor, small, leaderless church in Thessalonica. And they were the model. Why? Because how they received the gospel and how they imitated Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ and how they brought the gospel to others. So it's not about size, it's not about wealth, it's not about power and authority and influence. All that is far too often on the American scene. No, it's about faithfulness to the Lord and to his word. And Paul says that they are an example for other Christians. They're an example in the world. They're an example to unbelievers. They are excelling in their faith. And we have to remember that these are real people with real problems and real suffering and they are really coming together. I think too often we view Bible people as not really being real people. They're somehow different as if somehow the Bible people walk around with halos over their heads and, and they only speak in these and thous. And every time they speak, scripture comes out of their mouth. No, these are real people just like you and me. Paul says they're an example for others. The third and final thing that we see this evening is we see them not only receiving the word, not only imitating the word, but we see them sounding forth the word. There is no thought of keeping the word 
to themselves. Look with me at verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. This is a continuing activity. It, the word has sounded forth from them. This is actually in a perfect tense. It means it has happened and it continues to happen and it's having a continuing effect. And it is going out in Macedonia and Achaia. Not just into for one moment, but it is there. It is residing. And Paul says, people keep telling me about you. That's the sense of this verb, report. It is an iterative verb. Over and over again, people keep telling me. It comes from you. So what that means is from the very beginning... This church was a missionary church. And that's an important aspect of a church. We need to be a missionary church. Not just a church that supports missionaries, but a missionary church. A church that brings the gospel to our workplaces, to our schools, to our neighborhoods, to our families. That's what we are called to do. Do you see how effective they were? Paul says, your faith has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Now, think about that for a moment. I think you could picture it this way. Paul goes into a, a neighboring town in Greece. And he comes and he says, let me tell you about Jesus and about what he's doing here in Greece. And they say, whoa, 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 wait a minute here. You're Paul. You were in Thessalonica. Yeah, they told us about you. They told us about those sermons you preached. They told us about Jesus. We know you're a missionary. And they start to tell Paul all the things that he was going to tell them. And Paul says, well, I guess that saves me some words. Because you already know. And he goes from place to place. And the Thessalonians have sounded forth this word. They've brought it to the people around them. So that Paul doesn't even need to say anything about it. Imagine that. They got there ahead of Paul. And it goes far and wide. One of the things that we need to know about Thessalonica is that it lay right on a major thoroughfare throughout the ancient world. There was a road called the Via Ignatia. And it ran east to west from Byzantium in what is now Turkey all the way to the Adriatic Sea just across from Italy. And there was a major crossroads there at Thessalonica. So the word of God from this little church went out throughout the world because it was a mission church and it was a church that the world had come to. It was strategic. A lot like Houston. The fourth, perhaps soon to be the third largest city in America where people come from all over the world you know, this morning I was talking with people. I was talking with a family from Cuba. Standing next to me was a family from Peru. And then coming up was a family from Korea. And, and we have people from all over the world here because we have the whole world here in Houston. Houston is a very strategic place. So when we share the gospel as Christ Church, it's not just to people in Houston. We share the gospel with people who travel all over the world for business, who go and have relatives all over the world. 
So when we are missionaries here in Katy, we're also missionaries in Pakistan, in India, in Japan, in China, in Africa, in South America, all over the world. Would that it would be said of us what Paul says of this little church in Thessalonica. And what they sounded forth here was the message of the gospel. Now, when Paul says they sounded forth, this is the tie-in to the title of my sermon. Sounding forth is literally blowing the trumpet. It is giving the sound, the note, listen up. The herald would blow the trumpet, would, would blow the bugle, and would say, listen, we're going to sound forth the message of the king. And that message of the gospel was, Paul says, to turn from idols and serve the living and true God, in verse 9. Because that was the pattern in the ancient world. You see, we tend to think of idols as statues that we see in museums. Beautiful statues of Athena or of Zeus or of any of the other false gods, so-called. But idolatry was a part of every aspect of life in the world. And as a matter of fact, it still is. People speak to their ancestors. People knock on wood to stop spirits from hearing them and affecting their lives. People have lucky charms. Everywhere you go, you will see this. And what Paul says is, we need to turn from those idols and turn to the living God. Because today we have idols as well. We have idols of tolerance, idols of relativism. And believing in the Lord Jesus Christ means a definite break in habits. It means going and serving the Lord, turning to God. He is the only true God. He is the only God who is not unreal. That's what the Westminster Shorter Catechism question 5 says. Are there more gods than one? No, there is but one only, the living and true God. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom all things exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things are and through whom we exist. Paul is calling us to turn from our idols and turn to the living God and to wait for his Son from heaven, in verse 10, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus is the rescuer, present tense. He is the one who rescues you now. He gives you deliverance now. Now, notice the contrast here between the so-called gods who are not alive, who do not speak, who cannot save, and the living and true God who is a present help and rescuer. He delivers from all affliction. That's why we can trumpet the word of God in the midst of our affliction. Because we know we have a deliverer. The Lord Jesus Christ. What a story. But that's the story that we have. It sounded forth from little Thessalonica 
so loud and so clear that thousands of years later and thousands of miles away, that story has come here to you and me. May God bless us so that we might be faithful and spread that same message. May we sound that trumpet. Let's pray.